0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe,
1: And I'm Brenna.
0: And we are back with another excerpt edition, which means that we are talking with a Canadian YA author. I'm going to try not to fangirl. We've got <laughs> Kai Cheng Tom in the room to talk to us about Fierce Femmes. I'm so excited.
1: I think we featured this book in homework more than once. Hey, Joe.
0: At least twice. Yeah, yes. at least twice.
1: So so listeners, you know what book we're talking about, and you know how much Joe loves it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Kai, do you want to kick things off by giving us a quick sort of 30-second bio
2: introduction to yourself? Totally. It's so great to be here on, on this podcast. I love it. So I'm Kai Cheng Tom. I am a writer, spoken word performer, and uh, community worker, body worker. I've had like a million jobs. I still have a million jobs. I just keep adding them. <laughs> yeah, and I, I live in Toronto, Canada, on territory uh, that is you know included in the dish with one spoon wampum, which means that Toronto uh, is a gathering place of many indigenous peoples, and also that that was a treaty that was meant to be binding among settlers as well. I think mm-hmm. that's important to mention. And yeah, so I write in a bunch of disciplines and genres, and Fierce Fams is actually, you know, multidisciplinary, as as I'm sure has not escaped your notice. But my first love uh, is and will always be young adults.
1: I think uh, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is I talk on this show all the time about really looking to see more formal innovation in YA, more playing with form and genre. And I love there's poetry, there's dialogue, there's letters, there's sort of all kinds of different things interspersed into this book. And I just I love that. That makes me super excited for the possibilities of YA. So the book that you're here to talk about with us today is called Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girl's
0: Confabulous Memoir. Which I love. I love so much. I was
1: going to say, in addition to being possibly the best title we've featured on the show, could you give our listeners a little bit of a kind of quick logline or a little bit of a synopsis about what the book's about so they know?
2: Absolutely. So, Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir is not actually my memoir, although (laughs) maybe it also is. I like to say that it has to be kind of in the realm of fiction so I can have plausible deniability. And it is about a Chinese trans girl who runs away from home to another city where she goes to live on the Street of Miracles, a magical red light district where it's always nighttime, where everyone is always having a good time, except uh, often for the trans women who work there. Mm. Um, and when one of those trans women is murdered, our unnamed heroine joins a girl gang that decides to take revenge by beating up straight men randomly for fun.
0: That is a very, very adept it is. synopsis. <laughs>
2: You've done this before.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Once or twice. (laughs) Because
0: as Brenna suggested, I think one of the things that this book does so, so well is it, A, it's dealing with a crazy amount of magical realism, which is also not very thinly disguised perceptions of reality. And I just love this idea that if you're not prepared to deal with some of those realities, you can kind of escape into I hesitate to use the word fantasy because we've gotten into trouble for talking about fantasy with regard to trans narratives, particularly, but there's something fantastical about the journey that this book goes on, and I just loved this world that you created with it. But maybe let's take a step back from that before I, again, begin just gushing praise. (laughs) can you take us back to the origins like how did you get into writing and why did you decide to write your debut fiction book as a ya vehicle
2: oh gosh great questions well you know it's funny i think i i do kind of want to come back to this trans narrative as fantasy thing and and i'm not sure what kind of (laughs) trouble happened in the past and i i can see why i can see why folks might kind of get some hackles raised maybe at at the idea of, of trans narrative as fantasy because you know, because we're, we're real. On the other hand, to your question, you know, the origin of, of me writing has, uh, and this is probably because I'm like a specfic nerd, right? Like, <laughs> I grew up reading, deeply, deeply reading um, Tamara Pierce novels and uh, Meg Cabot novels and um, later on, a bit later on, Mercedes Lackey novels. And these fantasy books, you know, feminist, young adult uh, fantasy really, really saved my life. Because they they showed a world where it was possible to be a gender outlaw or a gender transgressor. I don't think there were actual trans characters in, in the works of those authors at the time, with the possible exception of Mercedes Lackey, who's, you know, always been ahead of her time. But... Um, the first adventure, um, Alana. The first adventure by Tamara Pierce. You know that famous mm-hmm. YA novel is, of course, about a young girl who disguises herself as a boy for mm. like four years, yes. or, or, <laughs> or like six years, or something like that, to be to so that she can become a knight, right? And 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 so this is to me a really beautiful, like resonant gender outlaw, gender um, transgressing kind of mm. narrative for young people. And of course, as a trans woman, kind of growing up as a boy and being forced to, you know, kind of take on that role, waiting for the day, right, that I could reveal myself, that whole hero's journey really spoke to me. And so when I, you know, became a writer, I was really thinking about those young adult authors, the ones who were so important to me. You know, another that I really should mention is Francesca Lea Bloch. Right. And, mm-hmm. and if folks have read Weepsy Bad or any of its sequels, then, you know, fierce, its lineage to Fierce Femmes is, is uh, you know, pretty obvious. So I, I really I wanted to pay homage to that to the importance of YA fiction and particularly YA magic realism and fantasy, um, that magical narrative that tells us that incredible transformation is possible. And, mm-hmm. and you know, trans people are real, we are r- real human beings who have real concerns, but we also have heightened narratives of, of the hero's journey in our real lives, right? I was a counselor for, for many years for, for trans youth and, and all of them, were, you know, incredibly real and incredibly human and also incredibly magical because they were all <laughs> so um, resilient and courageous. They had to be to survive.
0: And I think that comes through so strongly in this book as well. The characters really do feel magical, but also deeply, deeply human and relatable.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. And that was the whole point of the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kai, can I circle back to something you were talking about before when it comes mm-hmm. to these trans narratives and, and fantasy and the idea of being allowed to kind of play in genre space when you tell these stories?
0: Mm-hmm. I read
1: your letter that you wrote for Shared Shelf where you talked about mm-hmm. not having to write a trans narrative that necessarily maps on like cis expectations or even just like educational for cis people, right? uh-huh. uh-huh. And I've heard other other writers make similar comments. You know, Gwen Benaway talks a lot about the expectation that like a trans narrative is going to be a story of trauma and transition for the benefit of cis audiences. Mm-hmm.
0: Which doesn't get at all tiring, I'm sure. No. <laughs>
1: well, it speaks to this idea of sort of how the marketplace has like these limited spaces for all kinds of voices, right? That there's like, we have one spot where we're willing to fit you in. And that's, <laughs> that's what we're willing to accept. So I wonder if you could talk about the experience of writing and the choices you've made to really transgress or even just say no, like I'm going to write the book I want to write, whether it conforms to your expectations or not.
2: Yeah. Oh, I think that's such an important line of thinking, and and you know Gwen who Gwen Benaway who who you know is actually a neighbor of mine. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's and, really cool. We <laughs> just hung out the other night drinking oh my gosh. wine, <laughs> watching <laughs> Carnival Row. It's getting funny to also be like right, and also she's one of the foremost scholars <laughs> and trans poets in the world. <laughs>
1: Also, I follow her
2: on Twitter and her puppy is adorable. Oh, (laughs) bravo. Bravo is amazing. Okay, now we have to make sure Gwen listens to this. Yay! Uh, Gwen and Bravo are amazing and both of them are geniuses. Gwen actually uh, has really shaped my thinking about this because you know she she has an article um, in the Walrus magazine about another trans woman author friend of ours, Casey Klett, who who just won the Amazon First Novel competition, mm-hmm. right? And, and 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 how incredible that is to see actual trans writers a writing stories that are uh, much more uh, intended for a trans audience first and and, and also everyone else right mm-hmm. and then um also to be really recognized and, and you know gwen is really critically acclaimed casey is we've got you know other trans women authors like ariel twist and you know the, i'm thinking about the author of uh, if i was your girl meredith russo exactly Meredith. yeah we were russo, just talking about her on AM the show it. last week <laughs> yes, yes yeah she's fantastic and you know uh, that diversity of narratives uh, uh, and diversity of authors is so important because it allows us then to kind of either conform or not conform, or go back and forth, uh, mm-hmm. you know, however we like. We get to explore different aspects. When it comes to my own book, right? Like it was, it's interesting. Like I actually started out writing a much more of like a straight, not not memoir, but kind of like I thought I was maybe writing. Nonfiction for a young adult audience so I was mm. kind of writing a survival guide for young trans women mm. yeah, yeah. And, and and you know but it, it was meant to be sort of tongue-in-cheek and right. also a bit yeah, satirical and, and and heightened with with a bit of like magic poeticism in it. So I was kind of like, yeah, like all the normal things like, build a support network and you don't have to come out to your family until you know you feel safe doing so. And then it was also like stuff like pack a backpack with a switchblade in it. <laughs> you never know where you'll go, right? Uh, if you have seven league boots, you should probably also take those because you're gonna have to like, run really fast. Um, and as that as the as the sort of magic Magical parts morphed larger and larger, and I realized I, I, what, I wasn't actually writing a survival guide because as a former counselor, there's some really specific things I would say, actually, if I were trying to like do kind of like a safety-based right. survival guide. Right. But to do a survival guide for the heart, right, well, that's actually just, that's a young adult novel, a survival guide for the soul, reaching into magic and the power of danger. And so I was like, oh, this book is a dangerous book. <laughs> And so I began to write the danger into it Mm. while still like I what I still was really interested in was this coming out coming of age narrative and all coming out narratives are are coming of age narratives, no matter what age the character really Mm -hmm. is. Right. Chronologically, you know, because trans people have to literally go through, you know, multiple adolescences Mm. and actually I would argue that all people go through multiple adolescences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to be able to explore this genre of the trans memoir coming of age, coming out, transition narrative. But I wanted it to be one that mapped more closely on to transition narratives, like the one um, in Casey Platt's Little Fish, which is an adult novel. Mm-hmm like the one that I lived. Right. And that has much less to do with the kind of more normative transition narrative about like, oh, struggling in high school and then, uh, you know, maybe getting on hormones, coming out to a friend who then tells the school and then you're the spotlight. So, you know, that narrative exists. And I've seen it written by many cisgender YA authors, mm-hmm. actually. Right. And mm-hmm, because yeah. it is a bit more of a safe, you know, story for, for youth. But trans youth that I know, right, the real ones that I know, are concerned, sure, about, you know, hormones and and school bullying and all that stuff, but also are often living on the street or, you know, are street involved, really do have to, like, kind of congregate around art and membership in tight-knit uh, groups of peers. There's always fights and drama and, and there is, honestly, there is drug use and sex work um involved right so Mm -hmm. so i wanted to be able to acknowledge all those things while also you know as 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 joe mentioned kind of earlier i think putting that layer of magic onto it because what if if i were to someone else could write this novel for young adults i'm sure like the kind of gritty you know uh survivor of the streets trans youth novel but i was more interested in like the layer underneath that like yeah again the journey of the soul and and the magic um that can we can we can kind of express through through metaphor right and that's where the Mm. the magic realism part comes in
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. i mean you've talked a little bit about how you were working in other forms of writing and You mentioned before we began recording that you are actually about to embark on a new book tour because you've obviously written another book and this one's not YA. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us about how your writing has shifted and evolved. I'm fascinated by the idea that you have a book of poetry that you wrote before this because I can so clearly see the influence, but I'm also wondering... I mean, it's got to be a completely different process to go from poetry to fantasy fiction writing for young adults to an adult novel. Sorry, that was a terrible e phrase. No, question. it was
2: great. I totally, <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of how it feels. It's like, oh, I'm doing this, and then I'm doing this, and now I'm doing. Oh, I guess I'm doing this other thing. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You're yeah. Also, well,
0: constantly evolving.
2: It is, and and well, yeah, and, and and that's kind of the fun thing, you know, about being like a multidisciplinary writer. I mean, so yeah, I started as um uh writing poetry as a teenager you know i i had this love of fantasy and sci-fi novels but um you know i, I, I was a, a teenager and um, you know really really struggling you know in a lot of ways and so, you know, poetry felt like the most immediate and accessible format, right? And I got mm. into spoken word, which I still adore, um, and I also hate, I hate love, everyone has a hate love <laughs> spoken word, right? And, and so, you know, over 10 years, wrote what would then become my, my first poetry collection. And, and that wasn't really, like... The way that collection happened was I just looked at like a million horrible spoken word poems that I had written over 10 years and then like narrowed them down to the least horrible and then refined those and then not until quite late in the process reordered them in order to create, you know, more of a cohesive structure. Mm. So that book was like, it, it was evolving with me, whereas, you know, my young adult novel was much more of like, like I sat down and was like, I'm going to write this book for young adults, and and then I wrote it. Actually, the first draft was done in two weeks because I just oh kind gosh. of pounded it out. Yeah, yeah, it was it was, it was sort of shocking, and then um, you know, I wrote a children's book kind of while I was writing the young adult novel, and and that came out. And of course, you know, children's it was a picture book, so it it was quite a different you know genre. Mm-hmm. Although there's like a there's like a cameo or like a tie-in between those two, pieces oh. to kind of. Love. Yeah, yeah. Um, no one has ever noticed that except for one reader that I've ever met in my life. Um, oh well. Yeah, and then um, this latest book is actually not, you know, fiction at all. It's it's a collection of essays for adults, which is completely different, right? And so that process has kind of come out of. I was really hoping to write more you know, fiction and fantasy after Fierce Femmes and my children's book, but, um, you know, what actually ended up happening is that I had some personal traumatic experiences, uh, which really kind of dovetailed with the election of Donald Trump in in the States in 2016, which was followed by the election of several conservative political figures in, Mm -hmm. in Canada. And the sort of rising tide as well of, of the Me Too movement. And it just really kind of sank in really deep. And, and, and what became most important to me, and also I think in a lot of ways to, to the readership that's kind of followed me, was, was to, to talk about, you know, I want to be cautious about saying this, but, you know, it was like the quote unquote real world. Like, you know, uh, f- fiction and fantasy are about the real world, actually, in, in many ways. But but really, I, I, you know, to to delve directly into political issues of the day and particularly what, what's going on for social justice and, and, and queer liberation movements. So that's what the book uh, uh, is about. The, my latest book, it's called I Hope We Choose Love, A Trans Girl's Notes from the End of the World. And it really is about like, how do we politically... Uh, love each other in an apocalypse.
0: some heavy stuff, yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, I mean that's I think to suggest that fierce Femmes doesn't have heavy stuff in it would be to do it an incredible injustice. So... yeah, well,
2: you know there's there's murder and drama, <laughs> and lots of other things in fierce femmes and and yeah, things that um you know kind of place it in some ways out of the traditional young adult market. On the other hand, teenagers have been uh, dealing with, teenagers and, and, you know, young adults of all kinds have, have been dealing with sexualized violence and mm-hmm. um, substance use and general violence forever and um, are not unfamiliar, right? And, you know, around this, I was really, you know, I really come back to Bat, you know. Francesca Lia Block's first published young adult novel, the structure of which I kind of, you know, borrowed in many ways for, mm. for Fierce Femmes. And, you know, there's a lot of critiques to be had about Weetzie Bat nowadays, right? Because it, you know, comes from a time where uh, you have the cultural stereotyping in it could be reexamined. But what really stood out for that uh, with that book for me is that it, it talked about sex and polyamory um, really openly at a time when those things, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, we're even less kind of socially okay in the mainstream than they are now. And at the end of that book, it really delves into HIV AIDS in a really powerful way oh. without ever naming HIV AIDS, right? Oh, but really? yeah, yeah, I really recommend a revisit to Weeks It takes like five minutes to read anyway. <laughs> but like it, yeah, it goes into like the danger in the blood of, uh, of, of gay love and, and how that can stop people from loving each other and and you know what to grapple with that um as uh, as queer people what that means and so you know thinking about how that made it into you know one of the best selling ya novels in the 80s you know which continues to be a classic today i thought you know fierce stems can do justice to to what its audience is living through
1: mm-hmm. well that segues beautifully into our next question kai i have to say because <laughs> um, the next thing we wanted to talk about was You know, one of the book's great strengths is this phenomenal diversity of young women characters and the way their, I mean, their experiences are, I I guess, I mean, dark, I guess, Mm -hmm. difficult. Mm -hmm. And you've used magical realism in a way that often softens or maybe renders more humane the violence and the trauma that the characters experience Mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about that juxtaposition between the violent and and the magical
2: yeah well ooh, you know no one's ever asked this question before and I love it (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you know there are a few violences. I'm not sure which ones in particular you're thinking of, but the ones that come to mind for me immediately are um, first we have our narrator who kind of goes through this very stylized, um, ambiguous experience of being attacked by killer bees. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, there's two versions of that story, one which is like a little bit more, you know, kind of delightful, um, where she kind of learns to be one with a colony of honeybees and then there's a second version where um, a, a swarm of killer bees attacks her in the yes. night and enters her body and, and then just stays there uh, yes. you know and yeah. then there's kind of a, a Tamlin fairy tale based scene around the character um, Rapunzel and her and her drug addiction mm-hmm. you know um, mm-hmm. but it's, you know it kind of instead of it being a traditional street drug she's hooked on, on this thing called rapture which shapeshifts people (laughs) you know and and it's through the love of her partner that she is able to stop endlessly shapeshifting and find her you know real form again so those are the two that stand up along with like the you know the cop violence right yes and also um there's a fight between lucretia this like kind of bitchy character and and the main character and, and that brutality so those things you know are a bit softened maybe the doctor scene as well um it wasn't my intention it was not my intention to kind of paper over mm. that kind of violence. With the B scene, people have asked me over and over again, um, is that about sexual assault, right? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you know, I've always been reluctant to answer because I want readers to be able to come up with kind of things for themselves. Sure. Absolutely. I'll say, you know, you know, I, I have kind of hinted to this before. So what I'll say is this. Uh, as a person living life and as a, as a therapist, I often met with uh, young people, and, and I was one such young person myself who had a huge kind of like traumatic experience of life. But also, I didn't have a lot of real memories of of early childhood, but we know that trauma does this trauma Mm. kind of uh, embeds itself in the right side of our brain, which is much more physical and and we lose a linear narrative. Plus, also, just as we age, we lose linear narrative. We don't Mm -hmm. really develop that kind of memory um, in early childhood and often because really traumatized children have no physical escape they develop rich fantasy lives um, in order to give themselves hope and power and what happens then is that rich fantasy life and then you know the unclear memories of what's happened all kind of swirl together um, and it becomes really difficult to say what's true which is why it's so dangerous and also frighteningly easy to gaslight someone who has experienced trauma.
1: Yeah.
2: All this to say, um I wanted a book, I wanted in my book to represent that rich, beautiful power of fantasy that allows us to survive like, wow. you know, horror without having to commit to like a this is the facts truth. And that's what yes. we see in the kind of straight up transgender memoir, and, and we, especially ones written by cisgender people for adults. We saw this in the doc, in uh, the doc, in the, in the in the biopic, The Danish Girl, starring Eddie Redmayne, which he plays a trans woman. He's not a trans woman, but anyway, he plays this trans woman, who, uh, Lili Albi, and, and there's a scene where she gets beaten up, kind of, um, without any reason. And then there's also, you know, some gratuitous uh, operating surgical scenes. And mm. like, I was like, you know, I don't want to write a book where I graphically kind of go into traumatic details that shock and, and disturb my intended audience, which was, you know, originally, like or my first audience is, is trans people. I, I want something that both resonates with their experiences and, 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 and is a testament to their strength you know, without having to go into graphic detail, I wanted to resist mm. the idea that trans people always have to be constantly telling verbatim, awful graphic narratives, and especially around sexual assault, you know, the mm. paradigm of sexual assault in the court is you have to have perfect memories and go into it, right? And I just yeah. didn't want to do that. Oof. It's yeah.
1: powerful. It's so powerful. I mean, the way the, the I'm sorry, speechless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what you're articulating in the way that scene that scene with the bee's functions in the text is I, just deeply resonant. Oh, thank you.
0: But I also think like imminently accessible.
1: Well, that's what I mean. You leave space for people to have an experience of the text, which I think is really, I, I think that's what makes it so powerful. Sorry, John, yeah, I just to cut you off. I just you. got excited. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm going to take us away specifically from this one particular book so one of the mandates that Brennan and I have, it's self-directed, but it's something that we feel very passionately about is raising up the voices of Canadian authors. And <laughs> we've asked this of, of multiple interviewees, whether or not they identify as canadian and if they feel like there's something that distinguishes them as a canadian writer as opposed to something else so we're gonna ask you do you self-identify as a canadian author or are you just an author who happens to reside in canada and how does that (laughs) inform the way that you write or the way that you move through literary circles and so on
2: oh this is great um no one has ever asked me this either (laughs) um i love it oh like okay do i identify as canadian um The answer is yes and no. And and I will say no first because I am like opposed to the colonial nation state. Um, (laughs) And I don't think that Canada is a legitimate construction. Um, I don't believe that... um, Like the people in power have like legitimate moral authority over us. And I don't believe that the police and the military they use to force the population into obedience, uh, you know, has any rightful claim to violence um, over our bodies. You know, having worked for such a long time with homeless folks and marginally housed folks and, um, you know, crazy identified folks, you know, I really see that borne out. And, and also, you know, I mean, it would be remiss to say, like i working with like a lot of Indigenous folks, too, mm-hmm. um, like I just don't believe that Canada is a thing that like I, I can put myself behind and identify with. On the other hand, I do live within, you know, like a construction called Canada and, and, and the cultural piece that comes with that, like the people who live in this region, uh, migrants and Indigenous people and, and, and settlers all. And I, I would be lying if I said that I wasn't influenced particularly by what we, you know, often call the Chinese Canadian experience. My my great grandfather mm. paid the head tax. Uh, I had relatives. I have ancestry that worked on the Canadian Pacific Railway. Yeah. Those stories really go deep in me, and I feel very tapped into like that story, the story of the Japanese internment. Right. I really try to be tapped into like Indigenous legacies and, and histories. You know, probably fail at that. (laughs) But but I you know I think we should. It's important for settlers of color to try. And also, like you know, just starting to find out about you know kind of the histories of Black communities in Canada. Mm. And you know, I think a great example of how I identify as sort of Canadian but don't like it is. (laughs) There's a new um, TV show. I'm obsessed with TV. uh, A TV show. On the CBC called Anne with an E, right? Oh and it's yeah. An update yeah, of so Anna Green Gables. Here we go. <laughs> and, you know, for the and I love Anne of Green Gables. This is the other thing about me is I love like certain Canadiana. I love so *Anna Green Brenna. Gables*. I love the novel *Bear*. Anyway, but um, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that one where it is. But um, oh, yeah, you goodness. know, was, uh, you know, *Anne with an E* is the first, um, you know, exploration of *Anna Green Gables* to go into the historic Black community yes. on Prince Edward Island, the bog, and that's kind of how you know how I think about. Am I Canadian? I'm like, well. No, because I don't identify that way. But I am because I live here. And those stories, yeah. whether I know them or not, are are in me and influencing my life and my work. Mm-hmm. So yes and no.
0: Okay, that's fascinating. Not, I don't want to belabor the point. It's only just because when I read Fierce Femmes, even though it's not geographically situated in any specific real places, I'm using real in quotation marks here, Hmm. I so clearly got a vision of somebody moving from central Canada to like Vancouver for some oh, reason i don't know why
2: that's amazing i'll you know what i'll let you in on a a bit of a, a secret and everyone on a bit of a secret so you know that particular move is based on and actually my life and the move is from from gloom to the city of smoke and lights is mm-hmm. is kind of based around vancouver to montreal
1: oh interesting yeah oh, okay so i live well i just recently moved to kamloops bc i was in vancouver for nine years and i I was pretty sure the city of gloom was Vancouver. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I guess yeah. I
0: have not spent enough time in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah.
1: in the gloomy season, my friend. Uh, which is
2: like nine months long <laughs> it or is ten.
1: Long. <laughs> it <is>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so our final question for you is the question, you know, this is an adaptation podcast primarily. We talk about YA and how it adapts to film. And so I guess my question for you is Have you ever imagined Fierce Femmes as a film? Do you have like a fantasy cast or fantasy director in mind who you would like (laughs) love? Can we send something into the universe and will it into
0: happening? (laughs) Because this would make a great film, it by would. the way.
2: I have this huge grin on my face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, yes. um, I've never really dared to go too deep into a fantasy of this book as a film because, you know, if you wish for something, then you could be disappointed, right? Yes, now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, sure. you know, yeah, there's been talk about the film rights being optioned. It hasn't happened yet, but putting that out into the universe. I have two little visions for it, and, and, and one is uh, as an animated film. <gasps> oh!
0: That's yeah, right.
2: because of just of the intensity of the imagery, right, um, and what you can do with animation. And I really think like traditional kind of 2D hand-drawn would be my mm-hmm. ideal, because I'm like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I grew up with classic Disney and all, but my other idea for it is the structure is based on Witsy Bat, Sandra Cisneros's uh, The House on Mango Street, um, Joey Como's Lockpick Pornography mm. and Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, <laughs> and, mm. and I would love to see it kind of the the stru- a film kind of modeled after the structure of Kill Bill, which of course is modeled after many many things with that kind of like multi genre right like partly animated, partly live action, and yeah, I mean I don't really have a fantasy cast, and I'll tell you why it's because secretly not so secretly almost every trans woman character in that book is kind of based on a real person who you know okay. um, but I, I can never reveal who those people are <laughs> uh, ever because i will die but um, yeah let's like I, I think about the cast of pose oh, okay like the incredible you know actors and actresses uh, there uh, India Moore really comes oh, yes. to mind as, you know, for me, um, maybe, like, Rapunzel. I just also think that Andrea Pagis, the model, would make an amazing Lucretia. Hmm. Yeah, as for the unnamed narrator, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, I'm just going to leave that up I feel like you need, to ingenue, right? you need an ingenue, right? You like, a fresh face. Exactly, exactly. Someone who is, like, just enough like me, but also just enough not like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, what, I just... It would be so weird and miraculous. And, okay, I would really want Guillermo del Toro to direct. Yes, that's an amazing choice. That's a great choice. Uh, Well, I mean, he's just so fabulous. And his sort of magical but dark um, Mm -hmm. take on, on, on life is, you know, kind of, really uh you know to me i think i think it's a perfect match kiamo if you're listening <laughs> please he's a big fan of the show
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: okay well that is the end of our interview questions but kai if people wanted to get in touch with you how would they do so
2: oh great question you know so i don't have instagram so not that way but um <laughs> Probably you know Twitter. Um, I also have a website which is just kaichengtom.com. I have to say the like kind of thing which is like for like all like publishing related inquiries. Please like forward to my agent um, mm-hmm. and stuff. And and yeah, you know I, I you know I will say this too. I am a trans woman living alone in Toronto. Um, so sometimes, well-intentioned folks who want to get in touch with a bit too fervently can be a little scary to me. Right. So, so, so maybe to not get in touch uh, in a very intense, direct way. But you know, I love being tagged on Twitter and getting involved in the Twitter convo. Um, and. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a reasonable request. <laughs> that's, that's a completely yeah. reasonable request. Um, and we'll link to your website and to your Twitter feed in the show notes, right,
2: Joe?
0: Absolutely. Cool. Beautiful.
2: Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I love this podcast. I'm going <laughs> to recommend it to all my friends. <laughs> ah, that's amazing. We would be thrilled.
1: And you've been just a delight to talk to. And we're both such fans of the book. And uh, good luck with the tour you're embarking on now. I hope it's fulfilling and not any more exhausting than it has to be
2: (laughs) thank you so so much cross fingers it's going to be great awesome excellent